0: preaching of your word profitable. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified and that the ears of your people would be open to hear, and that it would have its effect to comfort, to warn, and to encourage, to shape, to sanctify your people. And I pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so today we come to one of the most important events in human history in the Bible recorded here in First Chronicles. And if you have your Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn to First Chronicles chapter 17. This is one of the most important events in human history, although it's actually less of an event than it is actually a conversation. It is an event, but it is a, a conversation. It is the covenant that God makes with David. And this covenant that God makes with David, it actually explains all of human history. It makes sense of all of human history. It's actually one of, it's what I might give to answer the question of why my hope is unshakable. Why political upheaval or why systems that are on the verge of teetering or toppling why a life or a culture perhaps is even on the verge of extinction, why stock market upheaval, or why sickness and death and earthquakes and tornadoes and blizzards and cancers, they may sting, but they do nothing to shake the confidence that the church has for the future. These words from God to David Through the mouth of the prophet Nathan, God's covenant with David. As we've already witnessed through the eyes of the chronicler, we've already witnessed that the Lord placed David on the throne as the covenant head of his people, his bride, his body, his flock, his beloved. David has been placed on the throne over these people. He's ascended to the throne and he's already begun to fulfill those sweet promises that God has assigned for him to accomplish for his beloved people. He's already fulfilling the role of Messiah, although little m for now, he's beginning to fulfill those things that God has assigned as the role of Messiah, He's already knocked down the enemy stronghold, crushed the enemy stronghold of Jebus, and has replaced it with the stronghold of the Lord, Jerusalem, the city of David. And he's also then, through the reign and power of David, God has also, he brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem was the center, the, it, it was the, the center of, of the people of Israel. It was, Jerusalem was in the midst of Israel, the center of them. And so when God, through David, brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, what he is doing is he is signifying that his presence is in the midst, the center of his presence people. He restores worship before the Lord, the people of God now assembling, not just around him, not just close to him, but before him, presented before him, officially standing in his official presence. Now, David here is sounding a little bit like Adam in the Garden of Eden. If you remember from Genesis, Adam, the head of the people of God, now David is the head of the people. Dwelling in a a place of safety in the presence of God, delighting in the presence of God. See, God the creator, he came to be enjoyed by Adam as he would walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. But Adam's joy in the presence of God and the people under God and the people under Adam's headship after him their enjoyment of God's presence was dependent on the righteousness of Adam's dominion, of his reign. And so it was short lived. Because Adam sinned and he was expelled from the garden of God's special presence. And also, all for whom Adam was the head, also expelled from the garden of God's presence. And that was lovely. It was glorious. It was delightful. To be in the fullness of joy, to be safe in the presence of the Lord God. It was glorious, but it was temporary, with Adam as the head. The kind of question was being asked was, what, what kind of legacy could Adam build? What kind of legacy could Adam build for God and for Adam's children? Now we are living in that cursed legacy, brothers and sisters. COVID and communism, war, loan sharks, cancer, and abortion, and slavery, and divorce, and gender confusion, and racism, and fascism, and white supremacy, and the caste system. This is all Adam's legacy, what he could build for God and for his own children, his descendants. Now, David has been given a dominion in Jerusalem, established by God, and he now desires to build a house for the Lord. And the Lord, hallelujah, corrects him and flips the script. No, David, I will build you a house. That brings us as an introduction to our first point, and that is this, God's calling is not Because of his need, God's calling is not because of his need. Hopefully you can see this with me as we read in 1 Chronicles 17. We're going to read the first eight verses. So let's read 1 Chronicles 17, 1 to 8. Now, when David lived in his house, David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. And Nathan said to David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, it is not you who will build me a house to dwell in. For I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day. But I have gone from tent to tent and from dwelling to dwelling in all places where I have moved with all Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a name like the name of the great ones of the earth. For the last few chapters, we keep hearing about David's house. We've noticed this over the last few weeks. The word house keeps coming up. And you're wondering, why, why house? Why, why are we hearing this word so much? David builds houses for himself, we heard. He builds houses. Now David built up his household, or rather sketchily, by marrying Numerous wives. We heard that Hiram, king of Tyre, he offers to build David a marvelous house, a palace of cedar. And we left the last portion of the historical account of the, with the Chronicles' words, repeated again and again and again, that the ark of the covenant of God was placed in a tent. Where? In a tent. Where? In a tent. Over and again. The ark's in a tent. David's got a house. David's got a big house. David's got a big household. David has lots of houses. And so now David is now enjoying the sweetness of a luxurious, safe, and beautiful house of cedar, and he realizes this incredible difference, and it bothers him. The Lord God of heaven and earth, his throne, the Ark of the Covenant, it dwells in a tent, while David, the Lord's servant, dwells in a glorious palace. Now, the word for house here in Hebrew can mean house, palace, temple, household. And it's used in all of these ways in the passage to turn the point up to the level of a shout. David desires to glorify God by building him a temple, a house, a religious palace, Fitting for his glory and holiness and power and majesty. And he's with Nathan, the prophet, and he tells him what he's thinking. Nathan agrees with David and he tells him to do all that's in his heart. And I want you to notice, first of all, that Nathan here isn't prophesying. He's not saying, I have a word from the Lord, or the Lord is telling you, or thus says the Lord. Now he says it in the passage, but this is not where he says it in the passage. He's not saying these things like the foolish, false prophets of today. He's not giving a prophecy that turns out to be false. Nathan hears David's godly words, and he recognizes them as godly words. In light of all the revelation which God had ever given to his people, David's desires, they make sense. And they were perfectly godly. It makes sense that David would build God a temple. You could actually even say it would make sense even understanding the role of the anointed king. It makes sense. It would be expected for David to build God. You could say, you could make the argument very well that it's David's responsibility. David was right to notice the difference between his house and the tent temple, and he was right to be concerned. When David considered all that his reign had done for himself, all that his reign had done for his people, and to look at what he had done for God and to realize, oh, I haven't done this for God. That was good for him to realize. And Nathan rightly affirmed it. See, the, the thing here is that David's plan is not bad. It was actually a wonderful plan that David had. And that's why being corrected by God was amazing. That's what makes it even more lovely because God was not correcting a garbage plan from David, but a good plan from David. This is the point that we're trying, that we're meant to see here. David wanted to do something for God. David saw how the throne had been a benefit to David. David saw how the throne had been a benefit to God's people. David now planned to make the throne a benefit to God, taking him out of a tent and putting him in a palace. And how lovely is it that God corrects this plan? I want you to see that the first reason, first main reason that David is corrected, it's because of this idea of benefit or need. God wants to make very clear, not not just with words, but with history and events, God wants it to make very clear that his relationship His covenants with people are not because he needs something from them, because he has no needs. David, you're not the first leader of my people. You're not the first man who I've called to lead my people. There have been many. And can you remember which one of them I scolded for not building me a house of cedar? Count them. Count all the men that I scolded for not building me a house of cedar, Zero. None of them. David, I brought up Israel. I called them to myself. I called them out of Egypt. I called leaders to shepherd my people. I called you, David. I called you out of the pasture. And I wasn't asking you to take a demotion to come to help me, to meet my needs. Now, this is a killer to our pride, brothers and sisters. And to David's, because this is the way our self-worth and our self-esteem has been built up in this world. How much we are needed, or what benefit we can be to God. It's a killer to our pride, but it is actually a sweet balm and medicine to our restless and tired souls. God calls Israel out of Egypt to serve him, but not because he needs to be served. God calls David and all the previous judges of, of, his, of, uh, of Israel, all the shepherds before him, he calls them to serve him, but not because he needs to be served. Now, his calling is for God's glory, but it's, it is for our needs. It's for our benefit. It's for our gain. We just sang the words, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? God cannot gain anything, brothers and sisters. He's infinite. What is infinity plus two? Infinity. He is all sufficient. He's complete and full, and He's dependent on nothing for His joy and His existence and His satisfaction. So, Even saying that God calls his people for his own glory, that's true. He does call his people for his own glory, but that can be misleading without understanding the word glory properly. God has the same amount of glory that he has always had. He doesn't gain in glory, he doesn't become more glorious. He is unchanging, he is immutable. That word is. In calling us, his glory is revealed. It's shown. It's magnified and experienced and enjoyed. He doesn't become more glorious by calling Israel out of Egypt or calling David out of the pasture. His glory is known and shown and enjoyed, though, when he does this. I don't need a temple, a house, David. I don't need you. I don't need Israel. Now, we're typically getting rid of things that we don't need. A person who can't do this is seen as having a problem. If you can't get rid of the things that you don't need, you've got a problem. We tell people to purge. and we call people who don't, we call them hoarders. Why are you keeping that? It serves no purpose. It's getting in the way. Free up space. Lose the baggage. You don't need that. And when we think thinking about possessions, there's a good case to be made for that kind of activity. But we have also applied that same kind of logic to our thoughts about God and our thoughts about people. And so more and more people are encouraged to dump people who are too much drama for them. I don't need this kind of drama in my life. Husbands throwing up their hands because handling a conflict with their wives, it's just too much for me. I don't need this. And they move on because the relationship isn't profitable. It's not a gain. They're better off without it. And so it was with the gods of the nations, and it is with the gods of the nation, dearly loved church, but not so with your God. Not so with the Lord, the God of Israel, who is your Redeemer, who is your Bridegroom, those gods exist because their worshipers exist. Not the God of Israel. Those religions place burden upon burden on shoulders which cannot bear those burdens up. And those gods say, I will be faithful to you so long as it's profitable for me. Make it worth my while and you will be called my people. And I will hear your prayers but not the God of Israel. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of David, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He needs nothing. So what a comfort to rest in the one who calls us to show his glory by meeting our needs. So he calls Abraham out of Ur. He calls Israel out of Egypt. He calls David out of the pasture not because of his need, but because of love. I don't need a temple, David. My people do. I don't need you, but I did call you. God's calling is not because of his need. It brings us to our second point, which I hope you'll be able to see with me, and that is God will establish an eternal house through David's son. God will establish an eternal house through David's son. God will, sorry, David will not build a house for God, a temple, but God sets up this conversation to make a stunning promise. The promise which our prayers and which our hope for the future depend upon. God himself will build a house for David. Read this with me and we're going to continue in First Chronicles 17. We'll read 9 through 12 at this point. 9 through 12. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more and violent men shall waste them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me and I will establish his throne forever. David will not get the glory of building God a house. God will get the glory of building a house for David. And here the word house means dynasty. The house of David, like the house of Windsor. He establishes here the house of David, the dynasty of David. The throne of David will last forever. It will not end. What God would do through David's throne for Israel will endure forever. It will never fail. It will not pass away. It will not be lost. It will not be ended by anyone's death. Not even David's death. And that was not the case with Saul. Saul was Israel's first king, you remember, and through him God did bring redemptions and good blessings from, for Israel from their enemies. These were good gifts. But the throne of, God, of, of, of Saul was taken from him because of sin, because he failed to trust the Lord. Instead he t- trusted in weapons, he trusted in himself, he trusted even in A medium. And so Saul was not given a dynasty. He was unable to pass the throne to his son. Saul's kingdom did not endure. It couldn't endure past his own death. Death ended the throne and the reign of Saul. But that's not the case with David. Remember that God chose Saul as the representative of his people, meaning he represented his people's hearts and their desires for a king. But in choosing David, he gave him a throne that represented God's heart and God's idea of the reign for his people. And death would not end the throne of David. It would be passed on to his son, and his son after him, and his son after him, and his son after him, and his son after him. I wonder if you realize the reason for this incredible gift. Not the cause, not why it was deserved, but the reason what the Lord would want to do by accompl- to accomplish through this. And we see that in verse 9. David's eternal throne was for the purpose of providing and protecting a place a land for God's people to enjoy him and serve him in peace and security so that violent men will waste them no more. David's throne was meant to meet Israel's needs. God meeting Israel's needs through David's throne to satisfy God's promises to her. So the people of Israel could rejoice that the gift of this throne was permanent. That means that God's provision and protection provided through this throne that it would endure forever. Now I wonder if you notice the way that the language becomes a little unclear and intentionally so. David is saying that da- uh, God is saying that David's throne, David's son, Solomon, would reign forever. Now is he saying that Solomon would reign forever? Is he saying that Solomon's throne would reign forever as it would be passed to his sons over and over again? Or is he saying that there will one day be a son of David who personally will reign forever and will need no descendants because he will not die, or at least he won't stay dead, and he will reign himself forever? Now, that's a pattern for all the promises of David's sons in the Old Testament, that question is supposed to be asked. Like, what is he meaning here? We know that the throne's gonna last forever, and we know that David's son's gonna reign forever, but what is that actually gonna look like? Now, many people watched the documentary uh, this year about the Chicago Bulls dynasty. Six championships they won with Michael Jordan. But the glory years are over, it is a memory. It's something that can no longer be enjoyed other than through reminiscing and, rel- and reliving it. It was glorious, but it was temporary. But whatever promises that God promises to do through the throne of David, through his covenant, would be permanent. They would endure as long as God was alive to keep that covenant. It brings us to the third point, which is this David's son will be God's son. David's son will be God's son. And now the problem with covenant headship, we've already seen this with kinsmen redeemers, is that your hope, your family's redemption, it depends on the strength and character of the head, that kinsman redeemer. And we watched last year as Elimelech's family became destitute and it was cut right down to the roots. No offspring, no ability to possess or hold the land, the inheritance. Their only hope was that God would give them a kinsman redeemer. This is the story of the book of Ruth, Elimelech's daughter-in-law. And it's sweet and lovely because a kinsman redeemer is found willing to redeem the family, at his own cost. But it's not merely having a man qualified and willing to be the head. Now, the hope of that family, the whole family, depends on his character and his strength. Because if Boaz failed, Ruth and Elimelech's family remains lost. It's all, hoped, it's all bound up in one man now, the kinsman-redeemer. And if he fails, the, comp- the, the family remains lost. And so now this is going to be true of the royal kinsman-redeemers, the covenant kings of Israel, the little M messiahs. These were men. And they needed to be men, not angels, because it was, needed to be a human to fulfill this, to be qualified to represent the family of men. And the problem is that all men are weak. All men are sinners. All men die. All men sin against God. And so that covenant must include a sweeter promise, or it's going to fail too. So let's continue reading in verses 13 to 15, and we'll see why this covenant did not fail. God speaking of David's son. Verse 13, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from him who was before you. But I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in, God, in accordance with all this vision, David spoke to D- uh, Nathan spoke to David. So each of David's heirs, we see, is actually going to be adopted by God as God's son. So when they, uh, they ascend the throne, God would now treat them as son, which means he's treating them as heirs. It also means that he's going to deal with their sins in a particular way. They will sin, these sons of David, who will also be considered by God as sons. They're going to sin and God will punish them, but though these punishments will be painful, they're going to be for discipline rather than for rejection. We read in Hebrews, we read in Hebrews not long ago that that God's discipline is Him treating you as sons. Sons. That discipline is God keeping the covenant, not abandoning the covenant. So when these kings sin, representing Israel, and Israel sinning along with them, God will certainly punish. And it will be God's wrath poured out on the king and on the nation, but it will not be poured out full strength. The prophets likened it to wine. It wouldn't be full strength. It will be cut. It will be diluted, this Punishment that God pours out on his people. It means he's never going to give them what they deserve. Which would be rejection and abandonment. He'll never pour this out full strength. But remember Saul was not given such a promise. This was an unexpected and undeserved gift. To have a covenant head. Somebody who represents you. And who is tasked with redeeming and protecting you. Who is also seen by God as his son, who he's not going to reject even though he disciplines him. Now, I'm sure your hearts can hardly keep from seeing this fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, the great and final son of David. The Lord kept his oath to David, which was for the benefit of the whole bride, the whole flock, the whole body. He kept his promise to David regarding his sons and and treating them as God's sons until the fullness of time when God would send his own son into David's family. When he sent an angel to the Virgin Mary, betrothed, engaged to, to Joseph, the son of David. And then there would be a time when all the judgment of God's people, all the judgment, all the wrath of God that they deserved, which he had held back, which he had put off, which he had postponed instead of pouring it full strength on the king and on the people, there would come a time when that judgment of his covenant people would be poured full strength on the son of David. And that was on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The redeemer of men had to be a man And that man had to be a son of David. But as Israel's history after David would give full evidence to generation after generation, the sons of David failed to accomplish what God had promised that their throne would accomplish. But God did not give up on that promise. Even though generation after generation, no son of David was found able to do this. God didn't give up on that promise. He didn't break his covenant. He joined the family of David, becoming a son of David to be qualified to redeem Israel, to fulfill that covenant he made with her. He became qualified to obey and satisfy the commands of God on behalf of men so that his accomplishments would would count for his covenant people. He would be punished instead of His people. When God poured out the wrath for the sins of his people on Jesus, the Son of David, all of their sins were punished forever. He would be the final son of David, he would have no heirs. Because though he died as a punishment for the sins of his people, Death didn't end his reign because he rose from the dead on the third day. And so his throne is not just passed on to a son, but it endures forever. Because he lives forever to reign and take responsibility for his people, whom the Lord, his father, had given to him. But I want you to notice a difference between the Lord Jesus Christ and David. See, he wasn't called out of the pasture like David. God calling David out of the pasture to shepherd his people was a step up. It was a gain. It was a benefit to David. It was God exalting David when he called him out of the pasture. But for the Lord Jesus Christ, God's only begotten son, the only eternal son who didn't need to be adopted, For the Lord Jesus Christ, his calling to be the human shepherd, the kinsman redeemer of his people, he was not called out of the pasture. He wasn't called up from out of the pasture. He was called down from heaven. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. He wasn't a son of David who became an adopted son of God as the other sons of David had. No, he was eternally the Son of God who became a Son of David. Fully God and now fully man. Perfectly qualified to represent us and perfectly divine to be able to reign forever. And so our Redeemer is God himself. Our King is God himself. Our covenant head is God himself. What he accomplished counts for us as if we had done it ourselves. And so we are clothed with his righteousness. And we are also now considered sons and daughters of God. Standing before God based on what Jesus Christ himself deserves. Enjoying his relationship with God now as sons of God rather than enemies. And this is a sweet relationship. And sweet things can come to an end, but not if they are covenant things secured by the son of David. So our relationship with God as sons will endure as long as he endures, and that is forever. That brings us to our last point. Uncalled for promises, call for confident prayers. God promises to build for David a house. Because it's not God who needs one, it's David who needs one. And all of David's people with him, they need this house. This dynasty, this household, this reign, this throne. They need a house to reign over them which endures forever. The Lord himself makes these covenant promises to David and therefore for all of God's people. God makes these promises and he also gives David David the words to rejoice and pray in response to those promises. And we see David's response in verses 16 to 27. We're going to read that right now. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I, O Lord God? What is my house that you have brought me thus far? And this was a small thing in your eyes, O God. You have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come and have shown me future generations. O Lord God, and what more can David say to you for honoring your servant? For you know your servant. For your servant's sake, O Lord, and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness in making known all these great things. There is none like you, O God, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making for yourself a name for great and awesome things and driving out nations before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. And you made your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God And now, O Lord, let the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house be established forever and do as you have spoken, and your name will be established and magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts, is the God of Israel, is Israel's God, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build a house for him. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray before you. And now, O Lord, you are God, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now you have been pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever before you. For it is you, O Lord, who have blessed, and it is blessed forever. David first asks, Who am I that you would do this for me? You know me. You know my sin. You know how small and insignificant my family was. You know I don't deserve this. You know I I couldn't have expected this or demanded this. What other nation has a God who has done for them what God has done for Israel? What other God? What other people? This is not the normal pattern of nations and gods. This is not something that was the standard it's not something that was expected of him by precedent. This is uncalled for. It's not something which Israel could have demanded God do for them. In fact, Israel often demanded God treat us like the gods of the nations, and God, hallelujah, refused to do that. God freely chose in love to do this for them. He freely did this. Not because he needed them. Not because God should have redeemed them as if it were wrong for God not to redeem them from sin. Lots of other peoples are not redeemed from their sin by God. You can't say that God was required to do this or he would otherwise be unfair or unjust or unloving. It's not something God needed to do. It was uncalled for. And then the rest of the prayer is basically a big amen. Truth, so shall it be. As you have promised, it shall surely be accomplished. David's prayers are, are now praying for things which will certainly happen. Because God has promised for them to happen. They're not based on what God could gain by answering David's prayers. God needs and he gains nothing. They are not based on what David wants to happen. They're not asking God to do what, so they are asking God to do what he has already said he will certainly do. Because God has sworn that he will certainly do this. Brothers and sisters, this is a sweet assurance for us that belonging to the son of David means that we can pray with such confidence, such courage to use the word David uses. Because he's already sworn to do those things which he has commanded us to pray for. This is an exclusive and very narrow covenant. It's not something which belongs to everyone. What other people has this, says David? None. It's not something God owes to everyone. It's exclusive, but it is offered to all who hear the gospel of the Son of David and believe, but only to those who believe. And so if you've heard the gospel of Christ's life and death and resurrection, if you've heard this and have repented from being an enemy of God and now have turned to Christ, trusting that his death and resurrection makes you a son. He is now your covenant head. And your future depends completely on what he has accomplished and how long he is able to hold what he accomplishes. On the promises he has sworn He hasn't promised you that you will be the king of God's people. (laughs) That role is already taken. But he has promised that the king of God's people will be your king and that his reign will be for your benefit, for your gain. That you will share his relationship with God. That he has adopted you as sons and daughters. That he he, he will establish the world as a place of safety and peace to enjoy the Lord your God forever. where his people will not be assaulted and harassed by wicked men any longer when he returns to judge the living and the dead. Brothers and sisters, we cannot put promises from God in his mouth. That is not the way to be able to pray with courage and confidence. We can't pick the promises which he makes and keeps for his people. We cannot bind God to such things because he's free. There's no way to force him to make promises or that he ought to do it. There's no way that we could put him in our debt. No way that we could make the case that it would be for God's own good to make and keep promises to us. No bargaining with God that way. We can't essentially put him in a box. Well, I told him to do this, and he must do this, otherwise he's a bad God. We can't bind him to promises, but he can bind himself to promises. Once he has sworn an oath to us, we are right to cling to it and confidently call on him on the basis of that. He has sworn oaths, he has cut covenants. Because those covenants are uncalled for, because we never deserved them in the first place, we can confidently and courageously pray, that the Lord will keep them. And he has promised to love you and keep you. He has promised to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He has promised to make you holy and to discipline you as a father, not as an enemy. He has promised to keep you. He has promised to glorify you when you meet him face to face. And he has promised to hold you until that day He has promised to bring you back to repentance when you sin. He has promised to to sustain your life with daily bread until the moment that your assignment on earth is done. He has promised to hold you all the days of your life, and he has promised not to keep you here any longer than he has planned. He has promised to work out all things, good or bad, to your benefit, for your eternal good and for your eternal Joy, he has promised to never leave you nor forsake you. He has promised to hear your prayers as if his own son had prayed them. And he has promised that these blessings will endure forever and that death will not be able to end them. And if your calling as his child was because of something special about you, Maybe that you are a more humble person or you are a more holy person than your neighbor or maybe a person who is more likely to have faith or perhaps a person who is more likely to accomplish great things for him. If your calling as a child was based on something like that, you would never be able to pray with confidence and courage because you'd always have to consider your strength, your worthiness. As my worthiness changed from when I was called Have I been able to keep my end of the bargain? Have I been able to accomplish the things that God knew I would be able to accomplish when he called me? But since your calling as sons and daughters is uncalled for, since it was God's free choice, confident prayers are called out of your soul and out of your mouth. And the enemy might discourage you from praying, from resting in the Lord and calling on him for strength or provision or forgiveness Or confidence, the enemy might discourage you from praying by encouraging you to think, I don't deserve this prayer. I haven't done enough for God. What benefit would it be for God to hear my prayers? Oh, brothers and sisters, you've never deserved the right to pray. You've never put God in your debt. You've never made it worthwhile for God to hear your prayers So pray according to his promises. If your confidence is only in the son of David and in the oaths that God has sworn to him, then your prayers do not have to change in the depths of confidence because it was never in your worth. Brothers and sisters, the son of David has come and he does reign and his kingdom will reign forever. Of the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now the blessings and prosperity of the kingdom of America or Britain, whatever they may be, those blessings and prosperity are fleeting and temporary. They will rise and fall. And therefore, any benefits which came for their citizens are subject to be lost at any moment. Like the grass of the field that comes and then it withers quickly. But the kingdom of the Son of David will endure forever. And so too the, sh- the surety and security and safety and peace and joy and forgiveness and life of all who belong to that kingdom, is not subject to end. These benefits will endure forever because his covenant to David and David's son endures forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you have not acted as the gods of the nations, that you have not given us a covenant or a relationship with you that can be lost, but you have given us one that depends on your oath and on the reign of your Son. And Lord, we are grateful that you have given us your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be our King and for his kingdom and the benefits of his kingdom for his people to endure forever. And Lord, let us enjoy those benefits even now of having our lives guarded and kept by you, of being given redemption, of being reconciled to you, of being your children who can call on you, of knowing your love and presence. Let us enjoy those. And Lord, I pray that we would call on you with courage and confidence. We pray that you would hold us until the end when Christ's kingdom is fully revealed and established and may he reign forever. Lord, would Christ come soon. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.